Hello, dear listener. This is Tanner here with Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. A reminder that these episodes about Ukraine and Russia are not scripted. They are reporting as quickly as events happen, as often as I can get them. Sometimes I will misspeak. Sometimes I will say things that are untrue, simply because the information that I have at the time is all that I'm being given. In the future, we may look back at things I say here and we'll realize, oh, he was totally wrong about that. But remember, I am doing this because I want people to be as updated as I am, because I'm trying to stay as updated as possible about the events that are happening and trying to report them as unbiased as I possibly can. So with that being said, please give me grace if I misspeak, and please remember that I'm trying to do my absolute best. Without further ado, enjoy this one. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the podcast. Podcast is Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. I'm Tanner. I'm talking about stuff that happened. We're going to do a quick one tonight. I don't have a ton of updates for you today, but we're going to run over everything just a little bit. Yesterday was a pretty big update. I was spent a lot of time on that one. I'm going to spend a little bit less time on this one. We're going to take our tinfoil hats off for the most part. We're going to talk about just the objective reality on the ground in Ukraine and in a couple different international areas. Now, fortunately, I'm feeling a lot better today, so my voice does not feel as gummed up as it did last night. I'm not coughing quite as much, still coughing a little bit, but not quite as much. I'm probably going to be able to get through this podcast a little bit quicker just because I'm not going to be pausing and coughing into my arm as often as I was last night. Um, and remember, if you enjoy the podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, drop a five-star review. Let me know you're enjoying the show. I'm sorry for bugging you about that that so much. If you listen a lot, you know that I do that every single episode, but it really does help because it gets the podcast onto other people's suggested pages saying, oh, there's a lot of people rating this podcast with five stars. You should listen to it. And I want to get the news that I'm getting out there to every ear that's willing to hear just because I feel it's important to keep people updated. And to everyone who's listening, I've gotten a lot more listeners recently. Thank you all for listening. It means the world to me. It means the world to me that you want to be involved with the stories that are unfolding on the geopolitical stage right now. So please share the show with a friend. Let people know. If people are looking for truth, send them my way. Uh, let's get more people involved here. So on the grounding in Ukraine, like I've said, for the last four or five days, really the situation in on the ground in Ukraine has not changed a whole lot. The first week of fighting in Ukraine was very, very eventful. The Russians advanced pretty far into the region, but since then they've had a lot of trouble in the northern parts of Ukraine. Every single major population center in the north of Ukraine has, is still under Ukrainian control. The Russians have had more success in southern Ukraine. They, they captured the city of Kherson. They captured a couple more cities on the east side of the uh, southeast side of Ukraine. Mariupol is still under siege and still under control of Ukrainians, but the city is having a lot of trouble maintaining its population. And there are a lot of people trying to flee out of the city through humanitarian corridors. We haven't received a ton of news about these humanitarian corridors. I don't know if they're being set up and functioning properly or the last we heard, uh, Russians were still trying to bomb the city when there were humanitarian missions trying to go in and get people out. The Russians were accusing the Ukrainians of not letting people leave the city because people were trying to flee to Russia. We don't know exactly what's going on there and I'm not going to speculate on it too much just because I don't know what's going on there. But that's what's going on in the southern part of Ukraine. In the northern part of Ukraine, we've been hearing a lot of scary things about what's happening in Kiev with the Russian military advancing on the city a little bit more every day. The bombardment in Kiev continues. I just saw released maybe an hour ago videos of more missiles falling on the city. There are bombs going off in the city. Uh, most of the city is 
made up of civilian targets. And we know that the Russians are indiscriminately bombing civilian targets at this point. Again, we don't know if that's completely purposeful or if it's on accident, if they're missing their targets. But the more it's happening, the more we're starting to speculate that maybe this is on purpose to try to demoralize the Ukrainian people. We don't know for sure. I'm not going to speculate too much on that also because I just don't know for sure. But what I do know is that the bombing of the city is continuing and a lot of the population is currently bunkered down inside the vast metro station system inside of the capital of Kiev. Fortunately, the Soviet Union was really into creating metros, not necessarily because it was functional for them, but because they were worried about global nuclear war and they were really excited to get their whole populations down into the subway systems. If you ever played, played the video game uh, franchise of Metro, Metro 2033, Metro Last Light, Metro Exodus, those games are all about living in the Russian subway systems after a global thermonuclear war. Kind of a bit of like poetic fortune for the Ukrainians because the same subway systems that were built by the Soviet Union, which the Ukraine seceded from as the Soviet Union was collapsing, are the same subway systems that now the Ukrainian people are bunkering down in while the Russian army is invading their country. Kind of poetic, and I'm sure we're going to get some really amazing narratives coming out of those subway systems as the war is coming to a close. We don't know when that's going to be. We don't know if that's going to be in a couple weeks. We don't know if there's going to be a couple months, maybe a couple years. We don't know for sure. It's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. So we're seeing videos of Russian tanks in the streets of Irpin, which is just a few miles north of Kiev. It's kind of a suburb of Kiev, which means the Russian army is starting to close in on Kiev. That huge convoy has is still just kind of inching its way toward Kiev, but the fact that we're seeing these tanks in suburbs of Kiev means that the Russians are slowly encroaching on the capital of the city, and I'm sure that these battles are going to intensify as Russians get closer and closer to the city center, where the uh, Ukrainian government is still headquartered. And I bring up Irpin not only because I saw videos of Russian tanks in the city, but because something tragic happened there in the past 24 hours, and that's that a, an American journalist was killed during the fighting. He was targeted by a Russian squad and was shot and killed in Irpin. The journalist's name was Brent Renaud, and he was a journalist for, the, uh, for Time magazine. At the time, he was wearing a press badge for the New York Times, but that press badge was issued many years ago, and he was actually a, a doing a column for Time magazine. Brent Renaud was known for creating and weaving provocative tales of refugee crises and people living in very unfortunate circumstances and trying to bring these stories to light so the, brighter, the, the broader pub public can see what's going on in the soft underbelly of many parts of the world that we tend not to look at because they're really hard to look at. And so it's really a tragedy that he was killed here, not only because he was a journalist, but because of what his crusade was. And I'm sure that he's going to go down in history. I believe that he was the first foreign journalist killed in the fighting, at least the first widely reported foreign journalist killed in the fighting. And there's going to be a lot of outcry after this. So the conflict on the ground in other parts of the country has intensified as Russia has been accused of using dirty bombs on a large Ukrainian base in western Ukraine, just a few miles from the Polish border. And when I, when I say dirty bombs, what I mean is that the bombs were full of certain chemicals. It wasn't just regular explosives. They were full of certain chemicals that are far more damaging to biological tissues and biological matter than regular explosives would be. And these particular bombs that we're talking about, the reports say that they're full of white phosphorus. And what white phosphorus does is that it's a chemical that is manufactured and 
once it's exposed to air, it ignites into a lot of fire. So what happens is that there's a bomb packed with white phosphorus and the bomb hits the ground or explodes above whatever it's targeting. The bomb explodes and all the white phosphorus is thrown out in all directions into the air. It ignites and then it slowly falls down onto everything around it. So pretty much lighting everything on fire and including uh, people and unfortunately what happens with these bombs is that people will bring what will breathe these chemicals in and they'll ignite when they get into their bodies and it's just it's it's a war crime to use these kind of chemical weapons in any kind of warfare in according to international law according to the geneva convention so if it's true that russia is using these chemical weapons which i cannot absolutely corroborate that it's true there's a lot of news headlines going on saying that it's absolutely true i can't corroborate it yet because it has not been independently confirmed and i don't have any video of it but if it is true we can add this to the laundry list of war crimes that i have video evidence of that russia has committed in the course of this war but also having to do with this attack, this particular attack, is that it happened on a, like I said, at a base that's relatively close to the Polish border. I think it's only like 10 miles away from the Polish border. Uh, yes, independently confirmed, it is six, uh, seven miles away from the Polish border. Seven miles away from the Polish border. That's very, very close to NATO territory. And we've talked a lot on this podcast about how dangerous it would be for Russia to even accidentally attack territory that is part of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which Ukraine is not part of, but Poland, Hungary, Romania, Slovakia, all of those countries that border Ukraine are part of NATO. And so that could get really dangerous if Russia keeps pushing the envelope here. And also having to do with this is that because it, the attack was at a base so close to the Polish border, it's very, very possible that a lot of the arms and munitions that are currently being shipped in from all these international organizations and all these NATO countries were probably being housed at this large military complex to be distributed into other parts of the country because all of this military equipment's been flooding into the country and it needs somewhere to be processed in, right? You don't want to just throw it out all over the countryside. So it's being processed, it's probably being processed in military centers like this, and that's probably why Russia targeted it. Now, another thing to talk about is that there's a lot of international aid coming into bases like this on the border of Poland. There were probably a lot of foreign volunteers. We've talked about the international, I think it's called like the International League of Territorial Defense or something like that, and that was organized by Vladimir Zelensky. And that's how all of these foreign volunteers are getting into the country. Now, Zelensky says that there's probably around 20,000 international volunteers that have joined the ranks of the Ukrainian army. And a lot of these international volunteers are from the West, which means they're probably being processed in military centers like this. So it's very possible that a lot of foreign volunteers were present at this base when this attack occurred, which means that Russia may have just killed a number of foreign volunteers and foreign nationals living, living and fighting inside Ukraine right now which I don't know how the West would respond to that because they would be, you know, United States citizens, uh, British citizens, French citizens, Danish citizens, you know, citizens from all these different countries that have been, that have been, that have okayed it for people in their countries to go and fight this war. I don't know how they're going to respond to that if these people are killed by a Russian attack like this. Obviously, it was these people's own choices and they're doing this of their own volition they were not sent here by their countries and it's their choice they know what they signed up for but again i don't know how other countries would respond to this happening if a bunch of foreign nationals were killed by a russian chemical strike if indeed it was a chemical strike 
All right, three more stories about Ukraine right now. So our first story is that Russian and Ukrainian peace talks are still going on, and they have been going on since the first week of the conflict. These delegates have been meeting on the Belarusian border of Belarus and Ukraine, and they've been taught. I think this this was their third or fourth official session of peace talks. I don't know exactly which one it was. I think it was the third. It might have been the fourth. So the first few peace talks really proved completely fruitless, and we kind of just were reiterated what we already knew, which is that Russia says, okay, if you completely demilitarize your country, if you swear that you won't join NATO, if you swear that you won't join the European Union, if you swear that you'll demilitarize your country, you know, things like that. And then Russia says, you know, we'll get it. We will get out of Ukraine permanently. Oh, and also part of your government has to be under control of the Russian government. Ukraine was obviously like, yeah, yeah, that's not going to work. And Ukraine's demands, I think were just that Russia, leave us alone. Russia, get out of our country and leave us alone. That was essentially Ukraine's demands. I don't, I don't think it was much more complex than that, to be honest. But the first few rounds of peace talks were really totally fruitless because they couldn't reach an agreement based on that. It seemed a lot like an impasse to all of these delegates, but, and we don't know what exactly was talked about in this latest round of peace talks because they keep it very heavily under wraps. But what we do know about this is that the Ukrainian delegation came back and they said they were more optimistic than they had been since the first peace talk that maybe they're making some headway about how they could manage some kind of ceasefire in the country. So at least the armies could stop fighting each other for a time until they decide how they're going to go about this diplomatically, which again, we don't know what's being talked about here. We don't know what these two delegations are saying to each other because it's kept heavily under wraps, but this is a tiny, tiny sliver of light for the end of this conflict. We could be headed in a good direction. Don't know for sure, but we could be headed in a good direction because this is the most optimistic we've seen this delegation since the beginning of the war. And Russia should really hope that there is some kind of ceasefire coming soon because there's still a lot of protests happening inside Russia. The pro- this is, I mean, these protesters are going on to almost the third week of constant protests every night, and not just in, not just small protests, but thousands of people gathering in places like St. Petersburg and Moscow, just really ardently protesting this war that's going on. The Russian populace is not happy about it, and for good reason, because now their country has been sanctioned into oblivion, and their economic se- sector is just suffering intensely. So there's a story that came out of Fox News today, and I want to just talk about this for a minute because I've talked a lot about kind of this misinformation and the propaganda techniques and things like that going on in the, in the mass media at the time. And Fox News said that they believe there's a civil war that is brewing inside Moscow. And I just want to come out and say, I don't think that's coming anytime soon. I don't think three weeks of war with a sovereign country is going to lead to the collapse of a nation that's been standing pretty strongly for the last 30 years. And the Russian nationalism goes back a whole lot further than that. I mean, we're talking like 500 years of Russian nationalism would crumble if Russia was to completely fracture into oblivion. And I don't think there's large enough independence movements inside Russia to actually create anything like what we saw during the Russian Civil War, which were all these, you know, Ukraine had an independence movement and Kazakhstan had an independence movement and all these different countries had independence movements. I don't think we're going to see anything like that just from three weeks of war with a sovereign nation that has sanctioned the country into oblivion. I don't think we're going to see that anytime soon. But give us six more months of this and I'd be a little bit more inclined to think, yeah, I think Russia's on the verge of collapse. I do have a theory that this attack on Ukraine 
could lead to the uh, could be a do- one of the first dominoes falling in the eventually in the eventual collapse of the Russian Federation. But I don't think that's going to happen in the next few weeks. I think we're talking months to years from now. We could start seeing more of those dominoes start falling. That's just my opinion. I think Fox News is getting a little bit zealous with that, but you know, just my opinion. However. Russia is not the only country where, there, where Russian police and Russian troops are having to deal with protests against the Russian government, because in the areas in southern Ukraine, where Russia is currently occupying places like Kherson, there are Ukrainians marching in the streets protesting against Russian occupation. And this is a really brave endeavor, because a lot of these Ukrainians have seen these Russian soldiers kill people that they know and love without a whole lot of mercy. I mean, this is war we're talking about, and to Russian soldiers, the Ukrainians are the enemy right now. But despite that, these Ukrainian civilians are marching in the streets against this occupation, waving Ukrainian flags, chanting, death to Russia, Russia leave, you know, things like that. And these Russian soldiers, and I'm seeing video of Russian soldiers kind of just standing by with their big guns and just letting the protesters march past. So... I'm curious as to if that's because they've been ordered not to or because they're just demoralized and they're like, we didn't come here to kill these people. We didn't come here to fight these people. We didn't come here to arrest these people. I don't know exactly why they're kind of just standing down and letting this happen. Probably just to keep the peace, probably because they don't want to have needless bloodshed here. But I don't know for sure. But that is an interesting thing that's going on inside southern Ukraine because Ukrainians are coming out and actively protesting these Russian occupations. All right, so that's all my news that I have put together from what's going on in Ukraine. Let's look a little bit, let's zoom out, and let's look on the international stage. On the international stage, our first big story is that, still having to do a little bit with Ukraine, Russia has formally asked China for economic and military aid. Now, what this means is that Russia is starting to feel the pain of all these sanctions, and this is kind of confirmation that the attack in Ukraine is not going nearly as well as Putin probably hoped it was going to go. Because not only are they, are they asking for economic aid, which is to be expected because they're sanctioned into oblivion, like I've said, but now they're asking for military aid. They're like, hey, can you give us some guns? Can you give us some rockets? Because this is not as easy as we thought it was going to be. So Russia has formally asked China for that. And why that I think that is newsworthy is because if Russia, if, if, if China starts supplying weapons to Russia... That means we are kind of officially in a proxy war mentality because I've talked about proxy wars in several different episodes, but the North Atlantic Treaty Organization is sending weapons into Ukraine to fight Russia. If China starts sending weapons into Russia to fight Ukraine, that means that people, many countries around the globe are officially taking sides here in this conflict. This is what we saw in Algeria. This is what we saw in South Africa. This is what we saw in Nigeria. This is what we saw in Angola and Vietnam and Korea and Panama and all these different countries where these proxy wars were fought during the Cold War. We're seeing these kind of divisions happening again. And if China acquiesces to this request, that's going to be an obvious move against the West. Now, I talked yesterday about how China and Russia are closely aligned in terms of economic and other ties and China, Russia, and Iran have actually conducted naval military exercises together in the past few years, so I just am watching that really closely. Concerning China, China just today outright declared that they completely, fully intend to take Taiwan and 
repatriate it, make it part of China again, which is what we're all very afraid of. Because not only did they just say, hey, we're going to take Taiwan, make it part of China again, we're going to annex it. They said that they fully intend on basically invading it. And they released a statement to the world that said anybody who dares to stand against us is going to have a very bad day. This is pretty directly aimed at the United States because the United States is a military ally of Taiwan. If China attacks Taiwan, the U.S. considers that a declaration of war on one of its main military allies and economic allies because Taiwan controls the uh, South China Sea and that's where a lot of trade for the United States goes through. And so if China completely controls that, China dictates who gets to trade with the United States, which would be very difficult concerning that a lot of manufacturing is done in Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, all those areas. And if China controls that those areas of trade, that means they get to dictate how much people charge. They get to dictate what goes in, what goes out. And that could be very disastrous for the United States. That's why we like Taiwan so much. Plus we respect the independence of sovereign nations. So we're going to keep a really close eye on that. Because like I said about a week and a half ago, we're watching these conflicts closely because I think China's watching what's happening between Russia and Ukraine to decide how they want to act on Taiwan and if it's worth it. And if China has released a statement that they fully intend on attacking Taiwan, it means that what they've seen with Ukraine, they're probably more inclined to think that this attack may actually be worth it. I don't know why. I don't think this attack has been worth it for Russia. I think it's been far more detrimental to the country than it has been beneficial. But, I mean, what do I know? But elsewhere, this is a story that's unrelated to really anything we've talked about so far in this whole series of this podcast, but it looks like today India accidentally, quote-unquote, accidentally fired a missile into Pakistan. I say quote-unquote because I don't know if it was an accident or not. They just say it was an accident. They accidentally fired a missile into Pakistan, impacting a residential neighborhood, and so far reports say that no one was hurt, no one was killed, but a missile was fired from India into Pakistan. And this heightens tensions that have been there between these two nations for about half a century, because they dispute a northern territory of both of their nations called Kashmir. Both of them claim that they have, com they, they have historic control over that area. And they have actually fought a couple wars over this. And there's been more tension in this area for the last three years because there have been a couple border clashes that have happened between Pakistani and Indian forces because they say, hey, this is our land. No, this is our land. And actually, China also claims a little part of the Kashmir area. That's how big China is, is that China stretches from eastern Russia all the way to Pakistan and India, western India, northwestern India. So... Now, I bring this up because India is a nuclear power. India is a nuclear power. China is a nuclear power. Russia is a nuclear power. The United States is a nuclear power. And all of these nations are currently on very high alert with what's going on here. So I bring that up because China and India are not particularly friendly. China and Russia are friendly. China and the United States are not friendly. Russia and the United States are not friendly. Russia and all of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization is not friendly. And... I bring this up because if Pakistan decides to go to China and say, hey, we need some big brother help here, this could get a little this this could get a little bit messy. And before I continue with that narrative, I want to say one more thing. We talked about the 
issue between Iran and Iraq last night, how the how missiles were launched from Iraq into missiles were launched from Iran into a territory in Iraq where there were a lot of Kurdish people living. The United States defends a lot of Kurdish people and it and it bombed near a US embassy which is technically US soil and no one was killed, no one was hurt, but it was an obvious act of aggression on Israeli forces that were near the U.S. embassy because these Israeli forces carried out an attack in Syria where Iranian soldiers were killed. It's really complicated. You got to listen to the episode yesterday if you haven't listened to it already to understand that situation a little bit more. But because these missiles hit close to a U.S. embassy, a lot of people are very concerned that this could this could be an, a subtle act of aggression toward the United States because the United States is already in dire straits with their oil situation, and they President Joe Biden has asked Iran for oil. It's just, man, this is complicated. And, you know, but this is the global society we live in. So, the U.S. came out today and very vehemently condemned this attack from Iran because it was into a Kurdish population center in Iraq. And the United States defends these Kurdish people and they supply the Kurdish people in their fight against the Syrian government and other places. And the United States said that they were going to start sending missile defense capabilities into this region, specifically near this embassy and the Israeli airbase to prevent any further attacks. But Iran vowed that as long as Israel continues to carry out strikes against Iranian soldiers in Syria, they will continue to send missiles to this area. So Iran has said, well, we're going to keep doing what we're doing here as long as Israel keeps doing what they're doing. And the U.S. said, well, Israel's going to keep doing what they're doing and we're going to protect them in doing what they're doing. And we're going to keep doing what we're doing here. So basically nobody backed down from what they said they were going to do. And because of that... Tensions are getting a little bit higher in this area of the Middle East. So basically, this is all very, very, very complicated. And I don't know if you're able to follow my ramblings going on here. I don't know if I'm helping anybody with trying to understand what's happening around the world. This is a freaking crazy world that we're living in. But yesterday, in the middle of the night, as I was recording this, I suggested that the global political situation could be completely destabilizing. China's looking at Taiwan, Russia's attacking Ukraine, India just accidentally sent a missile into Pakistan, Iran just sent missiles into Iraq and attacked an Israeli base. The United States is actually asking Iran and Venezuela for oil when both of those countries have sworn their allegiance to Russia. I don't know, man. It's looking more and more like this could get real nasty if one person's decide if one person decides to press the wrong button, this could get really messy really quick. I don't want to freak anybody out. This is just reality as I'm looking at it. All right. Now on that happy note, remember if you enjoyed the podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, drop me a five-star review and write a review to let me know what you're enjoying about the podcast. Thank you so much for listening in and I hope to catch you in the next episode. Bye-bye.